Welcome to the Lakeside Baptist Church Podcast. We pray you are blessed as you hear the Word of God today. For more information regarding Lakeside Baptist Church, please visit lakeside.asn.au. shed and you get together with your farm mates and you uh, start to fix your farm equipment so you might have tractors, you put new oil and you make sure the tyre pressure is fine and, and you change the spark plugs and then you look at some of your equipment and you make sure the blades are sharp uh, so that it can cut properly and, and actually you might read some farming kind of magazines or, or, or how to do uh, the newest techniques and you make sure you've got lots of fertilizers and pesticides to make sure you can uh, do uh, grow seeds and all that kind of stuff and every single day you gather and you do that and that's all you do okay just picture that imagine if you're a, a fisherman or a fisher person and every day you gather at the e-shed or wherever it is in Fremantle and you've got a little a little shed there and you've got three or four boats and you make sure the boats are up to scratch. Again, you oil them or grease them, you make sure the motors are working well, mm-hmm, nice, and you make sure there's no holes in your boat. You check your nets to make sure your nets are nice and strong and there's no holes in your nets. And, and same type of thing, you might have bait for fish, I don't know, I don't, I'm not a very good fisher person. Uh, but you do all that and every single day that's all you do. Or imagine if you're a mechanic and you have a mechanic friends because you're hanging out in your kind of tribes and and every single day you go to your mechanic shed lots of things happening in sheds today but anyway you go to your mechanic shed and uh, actually you're not even doing it with friends you're doing this on your own and you've got this beautiful Commodore Holden Commodore V8 and uh, I'm showing my inner bogan with the Holden Commodore but uh, you look at it and you sit in it and you polish it, you make sure it's got that new car smell and you've got one of those little trees there. Occasionally you start it, that sounds beautiful. And that's all you do every single day and it's great. Or imagine if you're an athlete, can anyone here imagine being an athlete? <laughs> Not too many of us, but imagine if you were an athlete and you imagine uh, your sport, let's say, is basketball and you go to the gym every day and you lift weights and you look at the mirrors and you come out here and you shoot thousands and thousands of shots and, and you skip and you eat all the right food, but that's all you do. What's missing? Tell me what's missing. Someone, please. The action. The farmers stay in the shed, they don't actually use their equipment, they don't go to the harvest, the fishermen never throw their nets over the side of the boat, the mechanic never drives the V8 Commodore down Albany Highway through Armadale, they don't do that and the athlete never plays a game. So all these skills, all this stuff, all that is actually worth nothing unless there is action unless there is in the game, unless you're in the harvest, unless you're driving that Commodore, unless you're throwing your nets over the side of the boat. And the reason I start with that is because it's very, very important. As we look at what does it mean to be a disciple, disciple, uh, we hear, we learn, we soak it in, but the point of a disciple is then action, to go and to do. Jesus said, go and do likewise that we would become like Jesus and do like Jesus and be like Jesus. 
that we wouldn't just learn stuff, we wouldn't just sharpen our tools or, or make sure our nets are nice and tight, but we would actually leave the shed, so to speak, and apply the stuff in our lives. One of the things that Jesus really, really despised was, was knowing stuff or, 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 or trying to be religious or acting religious and not actually putting those things into action. Now, we have so much information at our fingertip, don't we? We can listen, we can read, we, we've got more translations of the Bible than we need. So we've, the, the, uh, the issue is not information, we've got all the information we need to do. We don't need any more. You don't have to come to church any more Sundays, you don't need to listen to any more sermons at all. Or if we were just to apply all the stuff that we've learned and read, there'd be enough. Wouldn't there? And so this morning, as we continue our series looking at the disciples, we're looking at different types of disciples, uh, I want us to remember that as we go through this, this isn't just for consuming and eating, it's for actually doing as well, that we would live this out, that we would apply this in our day-to-day lives. Last week, uh, Peter did a great sermon uh, on uh, Barnabas, and we looked at Barnabas, he was an encourager, and so the doing there is that we would encourage, and those little notes that uh, um, Jaden mentioned is for you to take and then to actually give to someone else as well, to encourage them. In, in whatever you want to encourage them, that's applying what we've learned. Today, we're going to be looking at James. Turn to the person next to you and say, James, James, just so you can remember that. I don't know if you remember, uh, two weeks ago, I preached on Mary, uh, and there was lots of Marys. Well, it's the same with James. There's lots of James in the Gospels. So let me give you a quick overview. overview. Jesus had two disciples named James. Uh, there was James, the son of Alphaeus, which is referred to as James the Lesser. And then there was James, the son of Zebedee, who's actually the brother of John, who's referred to James the Greater. Imagine being, uh, and the reason they did that is so you, they could decide which James it was, so you could discern who it was. James the Lesser and James the Greater. Uh, if you were the Lesser, that's not great. Apparently, they think it may have been how tall they were, so I would be Anthony the, Gre- Anthony the Lesser, uh, if there was another Anthony. Uh, so it was to do with how tall they were, or maybe even age. So there was, there was two disciples named James, James the Lesser and Gra- James the Greater. James the Greater is the brother of John, and he's the son of Zebedee, so their dad is Zebedee. Then there's another James, who is the half-brother of who? Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, he's not part of the 12 disciples, the original crew, the original 12 disciples, but he actually goes on and becomes an influential leader in the early church, and he actually wrote the book of James. So one of the books here, the book of James, the epistle of James, is written by the half-brother of Jesus. So just like there was a few Marys, there's a few James as well. And this morning, we're going to not be looking at James the lesser, we're not looking at James the half-brother of Jesus, we're actually looking at James the greater, or James the son of Zebedee, who is the brother of John. James, the, half, uh, the, the, the brother of John. Look up here on the screen, we'll see how J- uh, James uh, became a follower of Jesus. Again, much like most of the disciples, he just dropped everything and followed. Matthew 4, 21 says, going on from here, Jesus saw uh, two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat uh, with their father, Zebedee, preparing the nets, so they're fishermen as well. Jesus called them and immediately what did both of them do? They left, they dropped everything, and uh, they left their father, maybe because they knew that the next chore was even harder. So they were out of there, and they followed 
Jesus. We also read that James is in the inner circle. Look at these two verses here, Mark uh, chapter 3, uh, 37 says that uh, this is uh, Jesus is going off to heal or actually raise a young girl from the dead and he only takes the, these disciples. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. James uh, John always gets referred to as the brother of uh, James. Hands up if you ever get referred to as the brother of or the sister of a few of you there. It's not, uh, it's just, I'm Anthony or I'm this, I'm not the brother anyway. But poor, poor James, uh, uh, poor John there, always getting referred to as the brother of James. Uh, Matthew 17, it says after six days, this is when Jesus was going to the transfiguration. So this is a really, really spiritual uh, moment here. Uh, and, and what a privilege it is to see Jesus in this, in this state. It says after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, who's what? The brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. So we see that James is actually one of the very close disciples. Remember a few weeks ago, I showed you this diagram here, and it kind of looks at the different uh, circles of influence or closeness of being a disciple. And we have Jesus, and we have John, Peter, and James, and we have the rest of the disciples, and then we have the, the Mary, Martha, and then kind of the 70, and then other disciples who, you know, like the Samaritan woman and the multitudes. But James is in the top three. James is right there with Jesus. So he experienced Jesus. He saw Jesus. He was close to Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look at aspects or draw, try to draw some aspects of, of James's life that we can apply. Remember, we want to be mechanics who drive the car and athletes who play the game and fishermen who throw the net. We, we don't want to just hear and not do, but we're going to look at his life and see what we can learn and apply in our own life, yeah? Let's have a look. First story we're going to read from Mark, at chapter 10, a 35 to 34. Now, just before this, quite interestingly, uh, Jesus is actually talking about his death, that he will be, he'll, he'll be uh, betrayed and will be crucified, he'll be, he will die. And so this is kind of the context before Jesus goes into this story. And actually, not long before this story we're about to read, we also read that Jesus' disciples were having an argument. And the argument was, who is the greatest disciple? Well, I'm the greatest disciple because I've walked on water. Well, I'm the greatest disciple because I cast out that demon. Well, I'm the greatest disciple because I did this. I don't know if you've ever been on a sporting team or when everyone's, I'm the best player because I can kick with my left foot or I'm the best player because I can score the most points. That's kind of what's going on here. The disciples are kind of arguing uh, and, and saying, I'm better, I'm better. And Jesus turns and, and, and says, what are you guys arguing about? Now, Jesus knows and they're like, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. And Jesus kind of gives it to them. And then, and then we kind of get this, this story here. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Have you ever, if you've got children, have your kids ever done that to you? <laughs> they come up and they say, I, don't, just, I'm going to ask you something, just say yes. Or they come and say, oh, mum said yes, and so you just, I'm just going to, and you just, it's kind of, that's what these guys are saying to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus responds and says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right 
and the other at your left in your glory. Now, it seems a little bit insensitive or a little bit cringy that Jesus has just talked about dying and these guys, how, what? They've come and asked Jesus, well, can we sit on the, on the left and the right? And so the, the closest or the, the most privileged positions to Jesus sitting on his throne, what we, we need to also understand is Jesus actually promised that the disciples would sit on thrones with Jesus, in like, almost like a picture of this big circle. And so in some ways, they're just like, well, God, we get to reign with you. Can we sit on either side? Jesus, we get, can we sit on either side? Look at Jesus' response. Verse 38, he says, you do not know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He's saying, I'm going to suffer. Jesus is saying, the cup that I drink is one of suffering. The cup that I drink is one of giving up of my life. Can you do that? This is what he's saying. This is what's going to happen to me. They respond and say, we can, they answered. Whether they knew what Jesus was saying, we don't know. But their response is, yes, Jesus, we can do what you're doing. We, we can do that. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And so Jesus knows the life that was to come for both James, who we're focusing on today, and John was not one that would be comfortable and easy. In fact, it would be one that would be quite difficult with persecution and, and, and ultimately, more so for James, his life would be taken for his belief. Verse 40, but Jesus says, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those who, whom they have been prepared. It's interesting, Jesus does not rebuke them for asking the question. He doesn't say, mate, guys, are you kidding me? I've just told you I'm going to die and you're, you're trying to, you know, get, get the closest seat to me? What's going on? He doesn't rebuke them for that at all. He says, I'm going to go through this. Do you know, this is what it costs to actually sit there, but ultimately it's not my choice to make. Then we read in verse 41, it says, but then the 10, so the, the other disciples heard about this, they uh, became indignant meaning they were angry and they were frustrated. Why were they angry and frustrated? They're probably thinking, I wish I'd thought of that first. I wish I asked Jesus that question. Why didn't we ask? Because they think they want, they want to be there, don't they? Remember, not long before this, they were arguing about who was the greatest or who is the greatest disciple. And Jesus, again, finds out about it. So they're angry with James and John. Jesus calls them together. Now, this is, what we're gonna, this is where we're going to learn our first aspect. Now, it's not so much from the life of James, because we're actually hearing from the teaching of Jesus, but we do see it in the life of James. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles are lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's saying, you know, that the leaders of the day, the, the, the government or the, the people who are in charge, they almost abuse that power. They lord it over them. Nothing's really changed, has it? In any context, power gets abused. Abused. You don't have to turn on the TV and see, see when it goes wrong and, and, and corrupt and is take, people are taken advantage of. He says, you know that when uh, regarded as the rulers, the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But he says this, not so with you. If you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, No. That's not how you exercise leadership. That's not how you walk with me. 
And the reason, he says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus does not rebuke them asking the question. What Jesus does here is he redefines what greatness is. Oh, you want to know what great? You want to be great? You want to be successful? Let me redefine in my kingdom, in the kingdom of God, this is what greatness looks like. In, in God's economy, this is what success looks like. To be great in God's economy, to be great in God's kingdom means that you serve. To be great in God's kingdom is not judged by how many people serve you. So the world that we live in, success is, you know, whether you've got money or people who serve you, to, so, to, so to speak, or status or, or fame, and, and people look up to you or how many Instagram or TikTok followers you have or whatever it is, that's, that's success and greatness. But Jesus says it's the other way around. Greatness isn't determined by how many people serve you, it's, by, it's determined by how many people you serve. And he says, not only that, I'm a demonstration of that. I, if anyone should be served, it is me. If anyone should be worshipped, it is me. But what does he say right at the end? But even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Everyone say it? To serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Don't model yourself on the world or what the world says greatness looks like. Look at this wise uh, uh, quote here. He's a theologian. Uh, he says this, like many people today, the disciples were making the mistake of following the wrong example. Instead of modelling themselves after Jesus, they were admiring the glory and the authority of the Roman rulers, men who loved position and authority. It's men as in men, because in that time it was only men. And, and, and so he's saying the disciples saw that as greatness. Jesus redefines what greatness looks like. And he says, greatness is determined by how many people you serve, not the other way around. Okay, so we're going to look at the first two key aspects that we apply, that we take out of the shed, and this first one is service. And this, again, is, is a key characteristic to be a disciple. We, we touched on our very first sermon on, 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 on disciple series was to follow, but to be a disciple of Jesus, one of the key or the core characteristics of a disciple of Jesus is service, servanthood, to serve others. And we know that James would go on to do that. James would go on to serve Jesus and to serve by sharing the gospel. But servanthood is a key characteristic uh, to being a follower of Jesus. Why? Because it's a core characteristic of, of the very nature of Jesus himself. In the very nature of who Jesus is, is, is a servant. He comes down to serve. And so if it's in the very nature of Jesus, then it should be in the very nature of who we are. If we can't get this bit, then this is, everything becomes harder. This is a key aspect of, of being a disciple of Jesus. Now, when, I, when we say service, or I say service, or we think serving, we might think uh, tasks like being on the sound, or being on the worship, or doing children's ministry, and and, and, and that is serving, but what we're talking about here, what Jesus is talking about here is, a, in a, is more of an attitude, a heart 
a willingness and readiness to serve. Not whether you're on uh, one of those set-up teams. Or, and again, that's all part of serving. But this is at a deeper level that as a Christian, uh, we should have an attitude and a mindset, a readiness and a willingness to serve. A readiness and, and a willingness to, to help others, because that's what it means. A, willi- a readiness and a willingness to put others first, to serve others. A readiness and a willingness to, to meet others' practical needs. When we see practical needs, it, it almost flows out of us because there's a readiness and a willingness. In who we are, we serve. A readiness and a willingness to, to give sacrificially or to serve sacrificially. What does it mean to serve sacrificially? Well, to serve sacrificially means sometimes we miss out because we're serving. Sometimes when we serve, because it's sacrificially serving, it comes at a cost. Jesus served, he came to serve. What cost was that? He gave up his own life. That's the ultimate sacrifice. And so this here is more than just being on a roster. This is an attitude, a mindset, a core character trait of who we are that we would serve, that we would serve, that we would serve. We'd put others first, that we'd look to meet practical needs, that we would serve uh, sacrificially. Here's a picture of a sprinkler. You may have heard me, I've shared this illustration before. Uh, sometimes when it comes to service or serving, uh, we, 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 we're either a sprinkler or a garden hose. And obviously, only ever do this, I need to say this on camera, if it's your watering day, okay? Because I don't want to get in trouble with the main roads, no, not main roads, watering people. With a, with a hose, you can direct where the water goes, can't you? So you can water your tomatoes and you, you're not going to water those, whatever that plant is, because you just don't like the smell of it. Okay, you can choose where the water goes, correct? You, 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 you've got, you can, wherever you want to dit- uh, distribute the water, you've got control over it. With a sprinkler, you plug it in and you turn it on and where does the water go? Just goes everywhere goes everywhere. Most of the time in Australia, it ends up on the road, but, but it goes everywhere. And sometimes what we do as Christians, and Jesus says not to do this actually, we think we get to discern or decide where our service goes. And so we use the, we use the garden hose approach to serving. I'm going to water this, but not that. But Jesus says, no, when it comes to service, we're, we're to be like sprinklers. Wherever we go, that's wherever it goes. That's, that's the, and, and that's hard. Jesus, I don't like those people. Jesus, they're not very thankful. Jesus, I don't want to give that up. This is where, what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to be a disciple. One of the core characteristics of a disciple is to serve. Turn to the person next to you and say, service. Mm. I'll blame the mask. Now, what goes with service? These two are kind of peas in the pod. Service and humility. To, to serve properly, you need humility. If you have humility, being a servant and servanthood will be a lot easier. Look at this beautiful passage here in Philippians 2. You've probably seen this before. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So he's saying, as a follower of Jesus, our attitude should be the same as our our, our, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, uh, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. So we see that our Jesus is a servant, 
being made in human likeness, you could break this passage down, it's so, this is so, so rich, and being found in the appearance of a, a man or a person, he what? Humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So servant, servanthood, being a servant or service goes hand in hand with humility and being humble. And, and we see it here again in the example of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said this about humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility actually is probably more to do with an understanding of self, an understanding of who you are. Sometimes we think of humility as when someone says, oh, you're so, you got nice hair, Anthony. And you're like, oh, thank you, you know, it's, I, I, I don't really try. Or, you know, when someone says you're good at something, you kind of just, oh, sheepily, so, oh, no, I'm not that good. No, actually, you are really good at that. Um, that's, that's not kind of the humility we're talking about here. Humility is actually understanding who you are. Look at some of these definitions uh, on the next screen. Uh, John Calvin says, um, so if we're to understand who we are, as a Christian, we want to understand who we are in light of our God. God creates us, He is our Creator, so we want to have an understanding of ourselves in light of who God is. John Calvin, the reformer, says it is evident that man never attains to be a true, uh, to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God, the face of God, and come down after such contemplation uh, to look into himself. So what he's saying is, you can't have a full understanding of who you are unless you've what? Looked at God, understood God. And then by understanding God and who he is and what he does, then you have a greater understanding of who you are. This next one, uh, C.J. Mahaney, he, he writes it like this, and I love this. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. The Nelson Study Bible says this, uh, humility is a freedom from arrogance that grows out of the recogni recognition that all we have and are comes from God. So it's saying... You know, uh, again, when someone acknowledges that you do good at something, it's not about saying, oh, I'm no good at that. It's acknowledging that all you have and all you are actually comes from God. It's like and Calvin was saying, you've got to go to the face of God, understand God so you can understand who you are. And when you realize what that is, it's not to say that you're of nothing. In fact, you've been created in the image of God, but that means you're no better than anyone else that you are a sinner, but we've got a gracious God who sends His Son to save and to rescue. And so when you come with that humility, you will serve. Why wouldn't you serve? There's no caste system. There's no hierarchy. When we look at God. Uh, so look at this picture here. When I, when I want to put it into perspective, I love looking at these, wasting hours and hours on, on, on Google and, and looking at how small we are. This is our solar system, yes. The big one is the sun. And if you press the next slide, that there is planet Earth. I can't quite see where Lakeside is on there. But it just, we are so, so small, aren't we? Again, that's not to say we're nothing. We're not. We're created in God's... In fact, it should demonstrate God's love for us even more. That He creates all this, yet He comes to us to reconcile and to restore this next picture is a great picture. I don't know if you can tell what it is. When I first saw it, I thought it was like a toothpick or, or something, but it's actually um, 
uh, uh, space shuttle, space shuttle Endeavour, taking a photo as it goes up into the atmosphere through the clouds. This is an incredible photo. Um, and again, but how small do we feel and look? I feel small being here, but, but generally, we just, the earth is huge, God is huge, and that should humble us, not in a way where we have to grovel, but just puts us in our place and says, you know what, man, God is big, yet He still loves you, so we serve and we show humility. So the first two aspects of we can learn from James's life is service and humility, service and humility, if I'm humble, then I will serve. Because I know I'm no better than anyone else. I'm, I'm created in God's image. Created equal of everyone else. I'm a sinner like everyone else. Doesn't matter if I've been to church or don't go. Service and humility. Next one, let's have a look at Mark. Second story, we look at Mark, uh, chapter 3, verse 17. And this is really a small little passage. In this passage here, Jesus is, uh, not Jesus, the author is actually just listing who the disciples are, and actually we get to this bit here, it says, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name, now he, doesn't re- he does refer to them as sa- uh, sons of Zebedee here, but Jesus gives them the name, sons of thunder, sons of thunder. Now what is he saying about James? Is he saying that James has a, 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 is passionate about the environment or... or storms or or rain is he saying that what is he saying about James is it just a nickname because he walks heavy or he snores maybe sons of thunder Jesus we know knows all things and he can see into the person's character and see into their personality and he gives these uh, there's a clue here into the personality of James and that is James is characterized by zeal or passion and courage. Now, we will see that there's a negative aspect to this, but there's also a positive aspect to this. And I think this is something we, as Christians today, especially in the Western world, in Western culture, can really grasp and have probably lost. And that is courage and zeal. Turn to the person next to you and say, courage and zeal. Do it without zeal or courage, just say it generally. Courage and zeal is important, is incredibly important to be a disciple. And I reckon, again, that the Western church, we've lost this. The Word of God says that He does not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but one of power, love and self-discipline. We, we shouldn't be, I'm not sure if it's, uh, no, there's another passage where it says we're not to be ashamed. And that word ashamed is almost kind of like this image of a turtle going back into to its, its uh, little turtle house that we kind of hide out in there. We're not to be like that. We're, we're to be like James and John in the positive sense, to have courage and to have zeal. Courage is motivated from the heart to do something brave, good and right, regardless of the consequences. Let's have a look at that on the screen. I'll read it again. This is, this is, this is what courage is in my kind of thinking. Courage is motivated from the heart to do something brave, something good and right, regardless of the consequences. To me, this is a picture of courage right here up on the screen. Tank man, they call him. Does everyone know the story behind this? That's courage. Motivated from the heart to do something very brave, 
something very right, regardless of the consequence. The consequence, he could have just run him over. As Christians, the Bible talks about us having that type of courage. Having that type of courage when it comes to to sharing our faith. Having that kind of courage when it comes to living a life that is set apart. Jesus says that we are holy. What does the word holy mean? It means to be set apart. And our lives should be different. It it takes courage to live lives like that. It takes courage to to live lives like that. It takes courage to do the right thing when, when people are watching. It takes courage to do the right thing when no one is watching. It takes courage to to love, it takes courage to, to serve, it takes courage to walk and live in humility, it takes courage to do all of those things, it takes courage to hold on to the promises of God. Why do you think, and you've probably heard me say this a hundred times up here, the number one phrase throughout the Bible is the term, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, but take courage, take courage, take courage. He says, here, give it, I give it to you. And the reason we can take courage is this, this next phrase here that I've kind of put together. We have courage because we have faith in God's promises, God's power, and God's presence. Now, if, if we didn't have faith in God's power, promise, or presence, don't be courageous. The world is scary. Literally, get into that turtle shell thing and hide. I would. I'd do it now. <laughs> but, 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 but we don't have that. We, we, we should hold on to, we can have courage because if we have faith in God, we, got, we know that there's promises. This book is full of promises, isn't it? God promises us so much. Does God have power? Do we believe that God has power? Do we believe that God is present, meaning He is here with us today? Now, that doesn't mean life is hard. It doesn't mean that sometimes it's like, God, where are you? I feel like you are distant. I don't know where you are. But we hold on to that. We have faith. Knowing that He is here, knowing that He has power, and knowing that He has promised things. And therefore, we can have courage. And we can have courage like this cat right here. I don't know if this is a picture of courage or a picture of discipline. Um, Discipline of the dogs (laughs) or courage of the cat. Um, but, but that's, God says we can walk with that courage, power, p- um, presence, and promise. We walk regardless of what is around us. So courage. The second aspect is zeal. Look at this passage here, Acts 12, verse 2. This talks about James, that he had zeal, he had courage. It says, it was about this time that King Herod, so Acts chapter 12, Jesus has already ascended. The church is, is, is expanding from Jerusalem and people becoming Christian. And it said, about this time, King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, this is the first recorded um, disciple who was, who was martyred, who was killed. Now, there was Stephen. He wasn't part of the twelve. But James is the first disciple who's, who's put to death, to the sword, which means basically he had his head chopped off. That's what most scholars say, that he was beheaded. It takes courage to be beheaded. It takes courage to, to share the gospel knowing that you may be beheaded. You have to have zeal to do that. Zeal means to be passionate. And then it goes on and it says that Peter also was, was caught, and, uh, but he wasn't 
he wasn't actually beheaded, that don't know why. Some scholars believe maybe because James was so zealous and maybe he was a loudmouth and a bit smart and whatever. But the point is, he, 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 he died for his faith. There was courage and there was zeal. The next one is zeal. And this is a bit of an old kind of word and it's almost always framed in the negative, isn't it? Overzealous or to be zealous is kind of framed in the negative, but actually it's a positive word as well because it means to have great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. To be fanatical, that even saying that kind of seems, whoa, that's radical. But these guys were. There was zeal, there was passion, great energy and enthusiasm uh, uh, on in pursuit of a cause and objective. We need to be zealous Christians. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up from our slumber. I don't know if we have suffered uh, uh, or do we suffer from a spirit of apathy? Apathy is just like, uh, whatever, everything's fine. I think we do. I think as a church and as Christians, we do struggle a bit from a spirit of apathy. Everything is so great here. What do I need God for? But the world is broken. The world is broken. The people are hurting. We, we can't, we don't, the devil wants us to be apathetic. The devil loves it when Christians show, have just apathy. Everything's fine. Nothing's too bad in my life. I'll be right. I'll retire, you know, and everything's great. The Bible that you actually read is full of people who were zealous, who were passionate, disciples who were passionate, and we are called to do the same. A Tony Campolo shares a story about a guy, uh, I think his name's Jerry, and um, Jerry went to a high school reunion and he met his mate, I can't remember his name, let's say his name was Bob, Jerry and Bob are having this conversation and they, they were really good friends as teenagers right up to young adulthood, around 20, they were really up to, and then they kind of lost, uh, lost their way a bit in their relationship, friendship. Anyway, Jerry was saying how he became a Christian and he was saying, I became a Christian and I heard about Jesus and, and uh, my life has been transformed and all this kind of stuff, it's, it's just awesome and, and he's sharing about all this stuff and then Bob says, Jerry, I, I don't know if you know, but I'm a Christian as well. And Jerry says, well, how long have you been, when did you become a Christian? Tell me when you became a Christian. And he's like, I, was, I became a Christian when I was a little kid. And then Jerry said something really interesting. He said, well, Bob, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? Why didn't you tell me about Jesus? We were friends for years. And you never mentioned Jesus. And actually, he was quite angry with Bob. They got into a fight. No, they didn't get into a fight. But the point is, is really real. He's like, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? We were mates for 10 years and you never mentioned it once. You see, Jerry had a life transformation. He had a, an encounter with Jesus and, and a, what he experienced was real. And he couldn't understand if Bob knew this, if Bob understood this, why wouldn't he tell others? Not only that, why wouldn't he tell his friend? I was your friend, Bob. Can you see the, the story there? When we live in apathy, that, that's what happens. We, we are to take courage. And sometimes I know it's scary to tell our friends about Jesus. We have to have courage. We have to show zeal or be passionate. Yes, we may be rejected. 
And there's a way we do it, I get that. But to be a disciple of Jesus means we serve, we show humility, we have courage, and we have zeal. Let's move to our last little story here. Luke chapter 9 now. We read Luke chapter 9. I don't know if you've read this story uh, in, in the Gospels, but I haven't read this one for a long time. And it's an interesting story. You know the history, if you've been coming to church for long enough, between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans were kind of half Jews and, and they kind of blended the, the Judaism and the following of Yahweh. And they were very much enemies, hence the story of the Good Samaritan and all that kind of stuff. Listen to this story. As the time approached for him, this was Jesus, as the time approached for Jesus uh, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So Jesus is up above uh, Samaria probably, and now he's heading back towards Jerusalem as he's heading towards the cross or the final months or focus of his life. And it says this, um, and he sent, Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went to, into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, to tell people that Jesus, the kingdom of God had arrived. But the people there did not welcome him. Because he was heading for Jerusalem. The Samaritans had a dislike and hated Jerusalem. They believed God dwelled somewhere else and there was all this stuff here. Um, but, but, so they don't welcome Jesus. Look at the disciples. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, look, look what they said we should do. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Je- Jesus do you want us to, and they're probably echoing Elijah, remember Elijah called down fire and destroyed the, the Canaanites, not the Canaanites, the, the people who worshipped Baal, the fake gods, and then um, he won that kind of battle. He's kind of, do you want us to just uh, call down fire and we can destroy these people? Now, actually, their motives were probably quite pure. Because in their mind, again, these guys have courage and are quite zealous, they're passionate, and they're thinking, uh, these guys have disrespected you, Jesus. And so they want to honour Jesus, or they want to defend Jesus. How often do we make the mistake of trying to defend God? Have you ever tried to defend God like God needs to be defended? And we feel like we have to defend God, and we sound like these guys? I, I think their motive was pure. They're trying to defend God, and they say, let's, let's burn them all. <laughs> let's just wipe them out. Hang on a sec. I'm just like them, really. There's no difference between me and them. I, I'm saved. I'm a, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by the grace of Jesus. If we have that perspective, we're probably not going to say, wipe them out. Wipe them out. Wipe them out. When the disciples saw, James and John saw, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Verse 55 said, but Jesus turned. Now this is, I think this language is quite important because it's, sometimes it says that Jesus rebuked or Jesus said. The fact that he's saying Jesus turned, it's almost like Jesus is almost like, what? What did you say? He's almost turning and facing them. So he's serious. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Don't know what he said. I wish, wish it was written in here. Probably didn't swear, but I'm sure he gave it to him. <laughs> he turned and he rebuked them. You guys have got to be kidding. You've been following me for all these years and that's your response? 
and they went to another village. The disciples wanted judgment. Boom, there and then. Now, Jesus goes on and talks a lot about judgment. There's going to be a time where there is judgment. There's going to be a time where there is uh, consequences to the decisions we make. But not there and not even now. They will come. But that's up to God. God allows time. God gives people time to respond to Him. And again, uh, He goes on about where that time will come to an end, but not here. And what's also interesting, in Acts chapter 8, we see that the gospel goes up to Samaria and people respond and they become Christians. Imagine if, if James and John sent down the fire and there was nothing left. Sometimes what we want to do is, because we've been saved or, or we've said yes to Jesus, we want to be calling out judgment to everyone, the way they're living or, or the fact that they rejected Jesus or, or this moral stand, all this kind of stuff. And that's not for us to do. So the next two words are mercy and patience. These are our final two words, mercy and patience. God does have a time and place where there will be judgment. And he is the judge, not us. I think I've got that up on the screen. God has a time and place where there will be judgment and he is the judge, not us. The role of the disciple is to what? Share the gospel. We see it here. The, the role of the, the, of the disciple, the follower, is to share the message, to get ready, prepare for Jesus' return. And if people don't respond, guess what do we do? We go to another village. In fact, even, even um, when he sends a 70, he says, just wipe your sandals and go to another village. Judgment is in God's hands and God's timing, not ours. And this is really, really important. Our role as disciples is to show mercy and to be patient. Show mercy and be patient. God is the one that brings judgment, not us. We share the gospel, we share the gospel, we share the gospel, we share the gospel. They're not responding. Well, we can keep sharing or we, we can go to another village. We're not even to worry about the outcome. We're not even to worry about the fruit of the... That's not our... We don't worry about that. Our only responsibility, the only thing that God will keep us accountable for, He won't say, how many people did you lead to Christ? He's not going to say that. He's, he's going to say, were you faithful in sharing the gospel? Were you faithful in living it? Actually, the outcome is up to God, not us. And actually, that should be quite freeing. Our role is just to be faithful in the presenting and the sharing and the living of the gospel, that we would serve, that we would do it humbly, that we would be courageous, that we would be zealous and passionate, but we would have mercy and patience. Mercy and patience. I remember from even my story, and my story is not even a long one, uh, these, these Christian people were spent two or three years sharing the gospel with me, being patient with me. Imagine if they called down fire at Kelmscott High School. They said, this young guy, he's not responding. Bring fire. They didn't. They just kept sharing. Serving, humility, courageous in sharing the gospel, passionate in sharing the gospel, but mercy and patience. A young guy was sharing with me last week a bit of his story, and I'm hoping to get him up here in the coming weeks to share his whole story. But he, he, he shared how um, when he was in high school, his basketball coach, who was a Christian, he, he knew something was different about him, 
at the end of the graduating year, he gave him a Bible. Gave him a Bible. And, and he actually said quite funny, he said, I wish he just gave me money. What does he give me a Bible for? He gave me a Bible. And he didn't think anything of it and he threw it under his bed. And actually he goes on and tells that there was a time after that, I'm not sure how many years after, where he was really struggling with life. And guess what he found under his bed? That Bible. And he started reading it. Started reading it, started reading it, and God started to move and do some powerful things. And yeah, and now he's a Christian and he's playing for the Lakeside Lightning. And you'll get to see him uh, sooner rather well, soon. But what a great story. That guy, that coach, he didn't know what was going to happen. He just gave him the Bible. That's, that's his job, that's his responsibility. Show mercy and be patient. Service, humility, courage, zeal, mercy and patience. I'll ask the the worship team to come up and I will end with this. Remember, we are to be like mechanics who drive the car, we're athletes who play the game, we're fishermen who go out into the ocean or into the river and and throw our nets. We're farmers who who take our machinery and, and harvest, do the harvesting. We take it on board and we live it out, not perfectly, seeking him and asking him to lead us and guide us here's a little challenge for this week and if you don't feel prompted to do it don't do it that's fine no one's going to judge you these little bibles here these green little gideon bibles there's a pile hopefully over there yes there is and i'll put them on the table a box of them what i'm encouraging you to do is take one but you're taking one with the intention to give it to someone now you might you might have someone in your mind right now that's okay or you might not have anyone in your mind right now so you may sit on it for a month but i want you to pray about it or pray that there would be an opportunity for you to give this bible to someone okay it's a new testament and it's psalms and proverbs not a full bible and so just god pray remember god's the god of the harvest not your role is to be what courageous and passionate to to take the step and to give it away and so you're going to be praying. And that, that when you pray that, take it seriously. So when you're walking around and you have this prompting to give it to your next door neighbor, go and get it and give it to them. Or maybe you have a prompting already now of someone who, you, who God is saying you're going to give that Bible to them. And what I want you to do is, and this is uh, a, the guy who gave them to me, who gives out a lot of these, said to do, and I think it's great, is when you do give it out, write their name. So you're going to write whatever that name is scott morrison here you go and you're going to you might even say your favorite bible verse and you're going to say i really hope you read it but write their name and the date that you gave it to them and then be praying for them if you're really if you're really eager you could say if you ever want to read it with someone maybe we could meet up once a week or once a fortnight we could read it together bring your glasses because it's a really small font but that's even the next step Allow God to do whatever He wants to do with this. That's not up to you. That person may throw it under their bed. Who knows when they go and get it again. But our part in God's economy is to be faithfully praying when we are prompted to give it, write their name, write the date, and say, I hope you read it. Yes? So if you want to do that, there's a whole stack of them. If you don't do that, that's fine, okay? 
Um, and if you do do it, and then you come back and you say, Anthony, I'd love another one. Come and see me and we'll give you another one. And then you repeat the same process. Okay? How about we pray? Let's bow and pray. Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of patience. Because you've been merciful and you've been patient in our lives. We know that. And Father, help us to do that in other people's lives, to reflect you. Father, help us to be people who serve, who are humble. Father, help us to be people who are courageous. Lord, the world is, is lacking courageous people. Courageous people in the right sense, Lord, who, who stand for what is right, who, who do the right thing, who advocate, who are brave regardless of the consequences, Father. And, and, and that's different in all of our worlds. For some of us, that might be a conversation. For some of us, that might be rallying or lobbying the government, Lord. We don't know. But may we be courageous. Lord, may we be zealous in the, in the beautiful sense of the word. That we would be passionate about our faith. That we wouldn't be apathetic. That we wouldn't have stories like Jerry and Bob. And again, lastly, Father, may we show mercy and be patient. Be faithful to share the gospel. If people don't respond, we move to the next village or we just patiently just plow away, plow away. But Father, we don't want to be people who have really powerful cars in the shed or really good fishing equipment locked away or all the best farming stuff and, and maybe even be the best athlete and, and we never get into the game, Father. We want to be in the game. We want to be doing the harvest. We want to be doing the fishing. We want to do all those things. We pray this in your precious name, the precious name of Jesus. Amen.